Hi, this is Lori. And this is Rachel. Welcome to Tales, Tales from, from the Rock Side. Hi, Rachel. Hi. We're here. We're back. We're back. We're back in action. We are. Back in vacation last week, <laughs> back to the podcast, ready to go, yeah. ready and raring. Yeah, well, I wasn't on vacation, you were on vacation. Yes, I was on vacation. You need to be closer to your mic. I, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was, uh, I was taking care of a sick dog. Yeah. Yeah. She's okay now. Yeah, she sprained her back somehow. Still something. So. I don't know. She's old. Goofy dog, but she's been drugged lately, so she's happy with that. Yeah, she's, she's real out right yeah. now, so yeah. she's taking a nice little nap. I'm sorry. I was trying to put something away. I'm surrounded by chaos. I think I'm gonna get Rachel. There we go. A headset mic, so she can't keep moving it in a way. I need I need blinders. I think I need like those ones that we put on horses. Well, there's that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So anyway, we're gonna get into our story. Yes. It's actually longer than I was expecting it to be. So oops. Let's go. go through it. Um, we're going back to the mid-60s, but we're talking about someone that I think people more associate with the 50s, mm. like for his sound and stuff. Right. Which is Roy Orbison. Roy Kelton Orbison. Kelton? Kelton. Cool. He was born April 23rd, 1936. Nice. Yeah. So Kelton. Kelton. Interesting. Wait, it gets, it, there's some more names in here. More names? <laughs> more names. Gimme, give gimme. Give we'll get to them. Um, he had really, he had his biggest successes in the mid 1960s, but then he had a lot of forgotten years Mm -hmm. and then he had a career revival in the late eighties and he was really very influential on a lot of musicians. Um, a lot of his hits have been covered and the covers also charted, which I threw a couple of those on this week's Spotify playlist for every episode. We have a corresponding playlist that you can listen to. Yes. Like, you could put it on two devices and listen to the playlist while you're listening to the podcast. That would be interesting. I don't know if my brain could handle I'm that. I'm just saying you could do it. Or you could have two devices going and you could, like, listen to the, like, po- podcast. And when I reference a song, pause it and go over and listen oh, to the that's song. that's an idea. There's all, that's always, you know, there's all kinds of things you can That's do. an idea. I don't know if I could listen to my own voice back, though. Because I'm annoyed. When I say you, I mean the audience in general. You're looking at me. Yes, I know. You are my substitute for the audience. It's because I'm unaware. I guess that's it, yes. But like I said, you know, listen to the playlist if you want. I, yeah. I really, I like, I enjoy doing them. Yeah. A lot of sort of... Anyway, going on. Um, he, he really had a very emotional style. Mm-hmm. You, you know, um, he saying about being very vulnerable in situations, which is pretty unusual for a guy in the like fifties and sixties right. to have that kind of persona of being He's soft. Open and vulnerable and yeah. yes. And he had a very like almost operatic style to his singing. So Roy was Vernon born sorry. Vernon Roy was born in Vernon, Texas. To Orby and Nadine Orbison. Orby Orbison. Orby Orbison. I'm assuming that's a nickname. That's all I didn't. Know I hope Orbison. so. Yes, because it would be cruel. That's otherwise. mean. And then Nadine. I love the name. I Nadine. love the name Nadine. No, I, I like that as in general yeah, as a name. I do too. But Orby Orbison. Orby, Orby Orbison. That's like if someone was like Carney Carn, <laughs> exactly. which people do, but. Yeah, I know, they do. 
Um, his dad was an oil well driller and his mom was a nurse. So they're really kind of a solid middle class right. family. But they're also going through the depression. So. I mean, yeah. Um, they did kind of move around Texas some. And then they finally settled in Wink, Texas in 1946. Wink? Wink, Texas. I did not know that was a place. And um, I didn't see how many brothers and sisters he had. But he was he had siblings. I think he had at least two older brothers. And I think there was a couple kids after. Oh, okay. Um, he had poor eyesight, and he wore thick glasses. Same bud. Always. And his hair was almost white. Oh, weird. So he began dyeing it black at an early age and dyed it black for the rest of his life. Were his parents blonde? I don't know. Don't know? Don't know. That's just really rare. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was very self-conscious about his appearance, and so he was pretty quiet, pretty, Aww. Um, he was very, always very, just polite, well-raised, you know. Right. Not an asshole. Perfect. Yep. He was the opposite of an asshole. Yes. (laughs) He wanted to sing, and he was given a guitar on his sixth birthday, and after that, music really became just the driving force in his life. Mm -hmm. Um, Early on, he was mostly exposed to country music, and like many of the other Texans that we've profiled, he was also influenced by R&B and Texas music. And by the age of eight, he began singing on a local radio show. Aww, little eight-year-old. That's cute. Um, in high school, he formed a band with some friends called the Wink Westerners. Adorable. Yes. So far, great names all around. <laughs> they played country standards, and they played pretty steadily, you know, mm-hmm. around. They kept the band going part-time while they were all in college. Aww. And they won a talent contest, and they got their own television show on this little station in Midland, Texas. That's so sweet. And they changed the name of the band to the Teen Kings. Lesser of a cute name. Yes, I know. And in 56, Sam Phillips of Sun Records offered them a contract. Hey! Yeah. So they recorded a song called Ooby Doobie. Okay. Which broke into the Billboard Hot Ooby, 100. Doobie Doo? Just Ooby Doobie. Where are you? No, it wasn't that. We've got some. <laughs> anyway, they, uh, they, it peaked at number 59. It sold 20,000, 200,000 copies, sorry. There's too many numbers. Yes. Um, <laughs> They did a bunch of touring, but they ended up splitting over, like, writing credits and royalties. Oh, and, yeah. You know. Pretty, pretty common. Bullshit. Um, but Roy decided to stay in Memphis, and he asked his girlfriend, 16-year-old Claudette Frady, to join him. And they stayed at Sam Phillips' home, but they slept in separate rooms. Wow, very proper. She was younger. Um, and I, I don't think he was terribly old at this point, probably, because he's out of, he's, like, in college. Right. So he's, like, probably 20. Um, it probably in between 18 yeah, and 21. Exactly. That's usually about the age. Yep. So Roy decided, he had decided to stay in Memphis so that he could learn more about recording. And, right. And he was working for Sun. And um, people, at, yeah, people at Sun didn't seem too impressed with his voice. Like producer Jack Clement told him that he would never make it as a ballad singer. Oh, okay. You know, how many people have made it? Oh, sorry. My mic my, my jumped away from me. How many people have, like, made it in whatever after somebody's right. like, you'll never make it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Your mic was like... <laughs> I know, it just kind of flipped back. Yeah, it was weird. So, um, Roy wrote a song called Claudette about Claudette. Aww. Um, who he did get married to in 1957. Aww. And the Everly Brothers recorded it as the B-sides of All I Have to Do is Dream, which was like, yeah. a huge hit for the Everly Brothers. And so, Roy got a bit of royalties from this, but he was frustrated because he wasn't used as son. Right. And he quit performing for seven months in 1958, but he was still writing songs. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was working part-time for a songwriting firm called A Cuff Rose. I did not know that there were songwriting firms. Yes. 
for some especially th- then there was more crime. And I think it happens still too. Probably. Where there's people that like well like Diane Warren's one of those people that mm. don't record their own music. They just write songs yeah. for other people and so they form their own little company. Yeah, I guess you know? so. It's and just then, not something I thought about. Yeah, and then there's people like um you know, the, like the, all there's always artists that are good singers that don't really write songs. Yeah. That, that are that need material. Yeah. So makes sense. And there's people that like um that aren't really writers that tend to like collaborate with one particular person that oh, kind yeah. of forms like their writing helps to almost form the image of that artist. That happens mm-hmm. frequently too. Anyway. Um Neat. So by now, Roy and Claudette have a baby, and they're living in a little apartment. Aww. So Roy would go out to his car with his guitar to write his songs. You know, yeah. Obviously, don't want to disturb the baby yeah. and stuff. So there was a fellow songwriter, Joel, Joe Melson, who tapped on his car window one day, and this is in 1958, and they talked about collaborating and starting writing songs. <laughs> That's so cute. Yeah, it is It's very cute. wholesome. Guitar, yes. Yeah. Um, one of these songs came to the attention of producer Fred Foster, who signed Roy to Monument Records. Hmm. And at Monument, Roy started working with a group of session musicians known as the A-Team. A-Team. Who was, they was sort of a group that kind of formulated what became known as the Nashville Sound. Oh, uh, okay. Which was developed by producers like Chet Atkins, Owen Bradley, Sam Phillips, Fred Foster. Um, his first single didn't go anywhere, but then he started to get momentum with his second one called Uptown. Mm-hmm. And Roy had asked for a string section, and he started to elevate his sound. And his sound, um, in some ways, was similar to the Wall of Sound productions. Oh, yeah, yeah. He didn't have that density of sound, but the very lush orchestration yeah, I gotcha. was similar. So, um, Uptown reached at number 72 on the Billboard Top 100, but the next song, which really showed off of Roy's falsetto, was Only the Lonely. Mm-hmm. And at first they tried to sell this song to Elvis Presley and to the Everly Brothers, but they both turned it down. Mm-hmm. Mistake. Um, Oops. So Roy recorded it instead, and sound engineer Bill Porter did something new by building the mix from the top down rather than the bottom up. Do you know what that means? Mm-mm. Okay, normally you record you record bass, drums, and you, you know, then start layering stuff, and then the vocals are the last thing. Uh-huh. And, and even in these days where they did tend to have everybody record everything at once, Usually the vocals are still done afterward. And when when they say they recorded from top down, that meant they were, rather than concentrating on the rhythm of the sound, they were concentrating on the vocals and bringing everything into that. that, Okay. You know. That works? Yeah. Um, And that really, it kind of started his trademark sound. Right. They said they began with the close mic backing vocals in the foreground and ended with the rhythm section soft in the background. Mm. That, that was his trademark sound. So Only the Lonely shot to number two on the Billboard Hot 100 and it hit number one in the UK and in Australia. Nice. And he had really found his style and most of the work after this, like most of his songs were constructed to feature his right. voice. Uh, when Elvis Presley heard Only the Lonely, he was so impressed that he bought a box of copies to pass out to his friends. That's very cute. Yeah. Uh, Only the Lonely was followed by Blue Angel, which peaked at number nine in the U.S., and I'm Hurtin', which went to number 27. Mm-hmm. Roy and Claudette then moved to Nashville with their two sons, Roy DeWayne and Anthony King. Aw, Bebos. Yeah. Roy went back to the studio with a new song loosely based on the rhythm of Ravel's Bolero which was the song Running Scared. Oh, okay. I I was like, I don't know what the fuck that is. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, it it starts out pretty sparse. It's just the guitar that starts it out. Then mm-hmm. Roy starts singing, and then it starts building with the drums, and the orchestra comes in. It really builds to this crescendo, and the orchestra almost threatens to overtake Roy's voice, but then he has a final high A. Mm-hmm. Um, and the lyrics kind of speak of a man's fear that his girl's going to be taken from him by her old boyfriend. And it's like that kind of was the the basis, not that particular story, but but this very emotional, right. very like um, I'm singing about my fears right. and insecurities that really kind of became his Roy's trademark. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Running Scared reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and number nine in the UK. Mm. In July 1961, he followed it with Crying, yep. which reached number two. And this is, I love this song yeah. so much. I just love this song. It, it The way it's done is that it's, there's such a light touch to it. There's such a like yeah. controlled and yet it's so emotional and it builds so much. And he later recorded it with Katie Lang, and Katie Lang sang it, has sang it several times oh on her God, own, and she's it's so good. amazing. Um, and like as the song goes on, um, you you hear it start to like it, like in the vocal, there's parts where it you you're like it almost sounds like he's trying to hold back. Yeah, you know how how much this is all the feeling right, of it. Right, right. And then it gets to the final and it's just like, it's yeah. crushing. It's you, so good. You almost expect, by the by the, the finale or the final of it, you almost expect just him to break out in tears. Yes. Yes. And he doesn't. No. But you expect it. Yeah, exactly. Um, he had another hit in 1962 with Dream Baby, which reached number four. Mm-hmm. But by this time, his writing partnership with Joe Melson was kind of deteriorating. Yeah. Um, Joe Melson wanted to have his own career, and I think he felt like um, I'm I can't concentrate on my own solo career while I'm doing all this. I mean, with Roy, but you know that happens. Yeah, it does happen. He didn't really have a solo career, but you know whatever. It sucks, but he, you know what? He followed his dream. Yeah, true. Well, give true. him that. And I mean, you know, obviously he was very successful with Roy, and yeah, you know. So uh, Roy had also by this time had developed a stage personality that of uh, like he had this persona of this brooding and kind of emo man of mystery mm-hmm. and that was kind of due to two things um one was that he began wearing sunglasses on stage yeah and the story was that he'd left his glasses on an airplane in 1963 while he was on tour with the beatles ah. and he was just nearly blind oh yeah glasses and so he was forced to wear his prescription wayfarers because he had them with him yeah the only way he could see only, yeah the only glasses he had and after wearing them on stage, he found that he preferred them because he yeah. really suffered from severe stage fright. Same, bud. Yeah. And so wearing the sunglasses, it kind of helped him hide hmm. and it gave him that barrier. Um, he also tended to wear all black. And most of his songs obviously were about this sadness and emotion. Right. And that kind of contributed to his image. But like most people said, he wasn't like, like if you met him personally, he was very, he had a good sense of humor. Right. And he was... Never, like, mopey or anything like that. It's That was just the image that he had. Well, yeah. I mean, that's pretty common. For yeah. Him. He also tended to, um, like, completely stand completely still 
when mm. he was performing. You know, he wasn't somebody that like bounced around. Yeah, because like I said, he did have this severe stage. Fright. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and Kitty Lang had has said had said later on too that you know even though he wasn't, she said he was like a tree, mm. and he said she said that he just re- radiated this calm peace. And even though he's not really doing anything dynamic, she said he still projected so much, like, right. yeah, personality that he was really captivating on stage. Yeah, some people just have that. Yeah, yeah. His string of top 40 hits continued with In Dreams, Falling, Mean Woman Blues, and Blue Bayou. Mm-hmm. He went on tour in 1963 with the Beatles, and he was, like, he got to be somewhat good friends with uh, John Lennon, and he closer with George Harrison. Right, okay. Um, but touring did put a strain on his marriage. Yeah. Claudette had an affair due to just being alone and bored and young. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, and they stayed together for another year trying to make it work, but they did divorce in 1964. Mm-hmm. But then they were, ended up reconciling 10 months wow. later. Yeah. Um, Bill, Roy started collaborating with collaborating with a man named Bill Dees. Bill Dees. Bill Dees. And they wrote It's Over, which was a number one hit in the UK. Oh, okay. For the next song, the story goes that Roy and Bill were writing together, and Claudette came in to say she was going into Nashville. I don't know if she was going to shopping or yeah. whatever. And Roy asked her if she had any money, and Bill D said, a pretty woman never needs any money. <laughs> so that sparked an idea, and 40 minutes later, Oh, Pretty Woman was written. Nice. This song was really, it was different from most of his songs. Right. It's very guitar riff heavy. It supposedly influenced the Rolling Stones' satisfaction. Right. And um, it has a more playful, teasing lyric than Roy usually Yes. It's not the, you know. Yeah. And I mean, everybody's heard this song. If you've seen the movie Pretty Woman, obviously yeah, you've heard the song. So it, it uh, went to number one in the U.S. and the U.K. in the fall of 1964. Mm-hmm. And Roy was the only American artist to get a number one in the U.K. during that 1963-64 time really? period when the Beatles and the Mersey Beatles oh, right. taking that over England. It wasn't That stuff hadn't really come over here yet, right. it wasn't until 64 that it came over here. Yeah, like yeah. But in 63 in England, that's all that was yeah. being played except for... Like I said, Roy yeah, Orson. And then, yeah, I mean, the uh, Motown was continuing around that time, right. too, but they just didn't have any number ones in the UK yeah. in that time frame. Well, I understand. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but fortunes then started to do a downturn for Roy. His contract with Monument ended, mm-hmm. and his agent, Wesley Rose, moved him to MGM. Mm-hmm. And Wesley Rose also became his producer, and so then Roy wasn't working with the A-Team, the Nashville A-Team. Oh, okay. So his record sales started falling, the records weren't as good, and also by then, this is like going into 64, 65, and the British invasion is already taking over. over. Right. And it's not just that everybody wanted to hear British artists, but also the sound was starting to change. Um, Oh, yeah, it's a huge change. Exactly, exactly. In 1966, Roy broke his foot falling off a motorcycle while on tour in England. Wow. Yeah. But Claudette joined him, and they had remarried in 1965 in December. Aww. And so she joined him. They finished out the tour. That was um, sweet. Roy and Claudette both loved motorcycles. They rode them all the time. But there was a severe accident while riding caused Claudette's death. Oh, no. Yeah. On June 6, 1966, they were riding home from Bristol, Tennessee, 
And she struck the door of a pickup truck, which had pulled out in front of her, and she died instantly. Oh, no. Poor thing. Yeah. yeah. Motorcycles are scary. Rough. Yeah. Um, that Roy, sucks. Yeah. Roy threw himself into his work to distract from his grief, and he wrote the music and starred in a movie called The Fastest Guitar Alive. Mm-hmm. And this is, like, one of the reasons for the move to MGM was, oh, they make movies. Right. And, you know, maybe I can have a movie career like Elvis Presley. Yeah, exactly. But Roy wasn't, wasn't a movie really. person. I <laughs> <He> really wasn't. <laughs> and the movie was a flop. He said he was pleased with it, but, yeah, it was a flop. I the mean. critics hated it. Nobody went to see it. And he supposedly was supposed to do, like, five, it was like a five-movie deal. Right. They didn't make any more movies with him. He gave it a shot, and it helped him exactly. grieve. So... Um, he recorded a few more albums, but they sold poorly, and he was out of touch with kind of the direction the mu- music was moving. Yeah. Because, you know, this is, we're getting into the, the later 60s, and music's getting harder, it's getting yeah. more rock, and he's, that just wasn't Wasn't his, his style. style. Um, but he kept touring. Right. During a tour of England on September 14th, 1968, he received the news that his home in Hendersonville, Tennessee had burnt down. Jesus. And his two eldest sons had died. <gasps> Oh, oh my god. Yeah. Man, he had a rough had, couple years. Some real tragedies yeah. in his life. Some real tragedies. Oh, I just want to give him a big old hug. Yeah, yeah. And him and Claudette had had three sons, and yeah. the younger son then went to live with his parents. Mm-hmm. Um, he did remarry the next year, and then they ended up having two more sons. Oh, okay. Um, wow, a lot of boys. Yeah, yeah. It's just... <laughs> just a thing. <laughs> Um, throughout the 70s and into the 80s, he did some recording and he kept touring, but really at this point, his career's in the Yeah, I mean, he probably was just too, I can't imagine not being, like, distracted by all of the, just bullshit. (laughs) For sure, for sure. Um, but like, you know, nothing he's making is selling. Right. You know, and he's, I'm sure he's just doing, like, a lot of the oldies circuit. Yeah, probably. Um, but gradually his music started to be covered by other artists. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Sonny James had a number one on the country charts with Only the Lonely. How mm-hmm. was that? Glenn Campbell had a minor hit with a remake of Dream Baby. Linda Ronstadt went to number three with Blue Bayou. Yep, I've heard that cover. Don McLean went to number five with a cover of Crying in 80. Mm-hmm. And Van Halen obviously recorded the hard rock version of Pretty Woman yep. in 82. Also heard that. Yeah. Multiple yep. times. And they had a video. They played it all the time. Is it crazy? It's pretty crazy and it's extremely uncomfortable nice. these days <laughs> oh is it a little uh, gross well, yeah i mean there's like like the at the very end the woman takes her wig off and it's a guy so uh, there's that um it, i think it i'm pretty sure it has midgets in it i think it has a woman tied up with not a lot of clothes on it's been a long time since I've seen the video but yeah it's you know i mean it was made in 1982 i know so what was what what was the point of having short people in it? Oh, a lot of videos had had uh, short people in them. A lot of videos did. Were I don't they know doing why. a spinal tap thing? It was, no, they would just, kind of. It really was kind of like a spinal tap thing. They would just be, like, dancing around stuff. People thought that was, oh, my gosh, how entertaining this I is. I mean, it, well, it, I guess they're weird. getting paid. I'm glad yeah, people absolutely. got paid. Absolutely. It's just weird. Yeah. It's very weird. Yeah. When spy, I'm I'm assuming that the joke in Spinal Tap is that like remember when we were everybody was fucking doing this for some reason exactly exactly weird when in doubt go hire a little person to be in it yeah weird well Stonehenge <laughs> exactly 
Okay. In, so bizarre. <laughs> in 1986, Roy was asked by David Lynch if he could use In Dreams for his film Blue Velvet. Yep. And Roy initially turned him down, but then he agreed. Yeah. But then he saw it and was shocked by how it was used. The movie is wild. <laughs> but he said, well, on tour, they watched the movie several times, and he said, I really got to appreciate what David gave to the song and what the song gave to the movie, how it achieved this otherworldly quality that added a whole new dimension to In Dreams. Wow, good so, for yeah, him. he did appreciate. Cool. I can imagine, like, especially... If, I'm sure at first it was a little shocking. Well, I mean... Uh, Blue Velvet's shocking to anybody that sees it for the first time. True. <laughs> the first time I saw it, context. the first time I saw it, I think I was like 16. Yeah. So at 16, it was shocking. And now I've seen it a couple times. I'm like, yeah, that's Blue Velvet. Yeah. yeah. Um, so by 1987, Roy's career is really starting to pick up steam again. Mm-hmm. He re-recorded Crying as a duet with Katie Lang. Yep. And he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen gave a really nice Aww. speech. And um, a few months later, Roy filmed a concert at the Coconut Grove nightclub in Los Angeles with Bruce Springsteen, Aww. Jackson Brown, uh-huh. T-Bone Burnett, Elvis Costello, Man. Tom Waits, Man. Bonnie Raitt, Jennifer Warrens, Oof. James Burton, and Katie Lang. That's a Nice ass show, yeah. huh? Yeah, it was. It aired on Cinemax with the title "Roy Orbison and Friends: A Black and White Night." It's nice. really good. I'm sure it is. It's really, really. That's a good. that's a that's a quite the uh, list. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it. It like I said, it is very good. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. You can. Yeah. Yeah. And it was released on video by Virgin Records, and it sold fifty thousand copies. Wow. Nice. I'm not surprised. Yeah. So, in 1988, Roy began collaborating with Jeff Lynne from of Yellow. Right. On a new album. And Lynn had just completed production work on George Harrison's Cloud Nine album. Oh, I didn't realize he did production on. Yes. Huh. Yeah, Jeff Lynn's done a lot of producing. Cool. A lot of producing. And so they were all three just were eating lunch together one day. <laughs> That's so cute. Yeah. Can and... you imagine you're like eating lunch and you look over and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. And George asked if Roy Orbison wanted to sing on George's next single. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. And sure, my my friend George Harrison. (laughs) Wait a minute. It gets gets more crazy. Uh Uh-huh. They subsequently contacted Bob Dylan. Okay. To see if they could use the recording studio that Bob had in his home. Right, because you know. Sure, so Bob Dylan's along for the ride now. (laughs) And along the way, George Harrison went over to Tom Petty's (laughs) house to to obtain a guitar. He was like, I'm going to borrow a guitar. But then he's like, hey. Hey, Come along. Hey, Tom Petty, we're all on a road trip. What are you doing? Exactly. So they all get together this one evening. By that, by the end of it, they had written Handle with Care, which led to the concept of recording an entire... Like, there's this... There were all these... Like, like dumbass super friends. giant <laughs> superstars yeah. that just... Wanted to record clicked. something. Yeah. And they just clicked. Yeah. And they decided to make an album. They called themselves the Traveling Wilburys. Cute. They gave them, they, they said they were all half-brothers with the same father. Oh my God. They all gave themselves, like, you know, like, I'm stupid I'm names. Orville Wilbury or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or something like that. Like, um, silly nicknames, basically. Yeah, yeah, silly nicknames. But the album, The Traveling Wilburys, Volume 1, spent 53 weeks on the U.S. charts, peaked at number three, and it won a Grammy for Best Rock Performance by a duo group. I mean, duh. It did, it did great. It had videos and everything. Tons of videos. Duh. Yep. It's literally, like, the top of the charts, yeah. people. Yeah. Over to, like, just hanging and out. This was also kind of a time when, um, 
super groups? No, not super groups. There was a lot of music coming out that was kind of slightly throwback, but it was also feel good music. This is like the Hootie and the Blowfish uh, kind of Oh, okay. You know, so it's a lot of that good time jam right. kind of like non offensive, right? But also not innovative. Yeah, the, <laughs> just the good. I can put this. You on. put that on. It, it's it was, on like the the dentist office and also music. Also very much the baby boomers are uh, aging gotcha. and they don't want to listen to what the kids are listening to, but they, also want, but they also want to listen to new music. Now I get it. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So it, yeah, like I said, it's, it's dentist office radio. Yeah, basically. 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 It's um, not, not, not offensive, yeah. but not terribly, uh, exciting. Exciting. Yeah. It's, yeah. you can hear it on any oldies station. Now it's not oldies station. And then it wasn't an oldies no, no, station. No, no, no. Now. Like 40, no, but, I know. Yeah. Now it would be any oldies station. Of course. Or any yeah. doc, excuse me, doctor's office, dentist's office. Yeah. Vet clinic. Yeah. Whoever's got the radio on. Yeah, exactly. Because they never put on the, the hard stuff. Yeah. Wusses. <laughs> Um, Roy recorded a new solo album called Mystery Girl, which was co-produced by Jeff Lynne. Mm-hmm. And he later on, he said that Jeff Lynne was his favorite producer of all time. Aww. Yeah. Uh, the biggest hit from the album was called You Got It, which was written, uh, with Jeff Lynne and Tom Petty. Mm-hmm. And... Do you think they all just, like... Like, they all just, like, ordered pizza and, and like, recorded I mean, and possibly. Shit. It's just, I just think that the idea of, like, here's all these, like, huge yeah. musical people just fucking hanging out in yeah. Tom Petty's home well, studio. Was it Tom I mean, Petty's home studio or was it? No, no it, it was wasn't. Bob Dylan's. It was Bob Dylan's home studio. You also got to think, too. I think too, that's very funny. Yes. You also got to think, too, that, that for all of these guys, because they're at this level in their career, they're not, um, constantly recording, constantly touring. No, yeah. Like because these are guys that are... Like established, towards, yeah, established, yeah. and towards the end of their career, you know, I mean, they're touring when they want to, but they're yeah. not doing that non-stop. Continual. No, so they've got the free time. They just have it. Just happened to be that they all were free around the yeah. same time. George Harrison was over here because he had just recorded his own yeah, his, solo uh, album his solo with album. Jeff Lynne, and and I and, and I know that Jeff Lynne was really kind of the one who was just because. Jeff Lynne was the one who was younger than all of them, mm. and these were, like, idols of his. Right. Other than, I don't know, he might have been the same age as Tom Petty, I'm not sure. Right. But, um, but so he was also very instrumental in being like, let me get all these people that I love to work together. <laughs> that makes sense. I mean. Yeah, yeah. And I think they were all just, like, they, you know, obviously they all were very, very much loved Roy Orbison. Right. And it was, it was just like, they just kind of fell into working together right. really easily. I just love the idea of like all of these like icons of music yeah. being over at Bob Dylan's home studio oh, house. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't and it? And then being like, do you guys want a pizza? Or yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, like to me, like, like that's the pizza very funny. comes to the door and, you know, or he goes up to deliver the pizza. Yeah. Bob Dylan answers the door. Yeah, and, and then you hear is, fucking George Harrison yeah. like, "Is that the pizza?" <laughs> exactly. I'm not gonna do the accent, obviously. No. But no. like, that's nuts. I know. I know. That has it to. Is, that is so crazy. cool. I just yeah. I love that kind of crap. Yeah. It's like at the Oscars when a couple of years ago when Ellen took that big selfie. Of, yes. It just that that was so cute. Yeah. And like it's just like yeah, there's all these yeah. people who like you're like yeah, these are all very like talented and famous people, and they're all just kind of like. Yeah, get out. Yeah. It's just a funny thing to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um I just love that kind of crap. Um oh, what's his name? 
Daryl Hall has a show. Oh yeah, that, I watched that he Daryl has Hall people show. come to his home and and there's really some really cool yeah, episodes. I've seen that. a couple of them. Yeah. They're fun. Yeah, where they're just like yeah, they're, jamming. They're just we're just getting together. They're jamming. just hanging out. They like meet his dogs and stuff. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's really fun. It is fun. I like that. I like that kind of stuff. Okay, so like I said, the biggest hit from the album was "You Got It," written by uh, Lynn and Tom Petty. It rose to number nine in the charts, but Roy wasn't around to see it get Aww. there. He had been having chest pains, but he kind of ignored it, continued to play, and he was filming videos, and he was, like, really busy, like, this constant busy. And then on December 6th, 1988, he died of a heart attack at the age of 52. Wow, 52? Man, that is young. That's really young. 52 is really young. Yep. That's crazy. Yep. Aww. So that's the end of the story of Roy Orbison. Aww. Yeah. He had some really good things and some really yeah, shitty things. Yeah, he really did. He had a his he highs and lows. Real for rough. Sure. A couple of years there. Yeah. Oops. Yeah, for sure. Right. A lot of tragedy. It, and it's interesting that so much of his songs before all the tragedies yeah. were so concentrated on that high emotion and grief and you know yeah oh yeah for sure and and then to have these really awful just awful, awful, things. awful things happen to him yeah yeah and then even after that he had a bit more of a fun career yeah 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 which yeah. i mean honestly i probably wouldn't want to sing sad shit after that kind of bullshit too. no but i mean it's nice the two that you know he lived to have the that validation oh yeah come back to him yeah that's super nice yeah that's yeah. really cool it's, and, you know, it sounded like those last couple of years he was surrounded by friends and people who Absolutely. loved him. And he got Absolutely. to, you know, have a more, a, a, an upswing on his career, yeah. and, you know. Yeah. Not saying that, like, it's good timing. Obviously, he's 52. That's yeah. not good timing no. for anybody to die. That's very young. But, like, it's nice that he got to be in a better place. Yes. Because it would have really sucked if he had had a heart attack right after all yeah. of that tragedy. Yes. And, and not been able to have some happy years. Yeah. Yeah. That sucks. Um, apparently, he had re- recorded a bunch of songs after his sons died that was, like, about, like, a, oh, a, like okay. an album that, but they, they didn't release it. And then I think it has been, because his surviving sons yeah. found it. And I believe that it has been released since then. Oh, okay. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it has. Okay. So, anyway. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Poor dude. Yeah. He was, he was a very interesting one to do. Yeah, seriously. Yep. He seemed just like a... Like his a, music's beautiful. Oh, his I mean, music's beautiful. Listen to the playlist. His music's, music's beautiful. beautiful. And it's, he's one of those ones, too, that you don't feel like... Like, he was just kind of a normal dude. Yeah, you know? exactly. exactly. Like, being a musician was like just his job yeah you know he's just like a nice guy yeah, yeah. he didn't know? set himself up to be like uh, like i'm a god or anything no like that, and he did so many rock well stars. yeah a lot of rock stars yeah. <laughs> and he didn't have any of that like um you know he wasn't doing any of that, like gross shit yeah you know i mean i don't think so I didn't it didn't seem anything. sound like it it seemed like he was just yeah. a normal person like a good person yeah you know yeah i mean Oh, and the majority of my information came from Wikipedia yeah. and Biography.com. Yeah. So, anyway, thanks to Billy Zen for our theme song. Thank Billy you, Billy. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Rachel, for our logo. You're welcome. 
Um, don't forget that we have an Instagram, yes. Tales from the Rock Side. We have a Facebook, yes. and we started the Twitter, but it, although I haven't done much on it. <laughs> you we right have now. one. We have one, so you can follow it, and hopefully it'll start to grow. Um, we also have We're the Spotify playlist, so don't, don't forget about those. Yeah. Please like, rate, and review us on iTunes. Please, please. We really want to start growing a little more. That'd be awesome. We appreciate it. We listen. We appreciate everybody who listens to us. We yeah. We really do. And recommend us to your friends. Yeah. If you listen to us, you're automatically our best friends. You are. So get excited. Yes. We love you all. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you stop by, I'll give you some, I'll make you some stew or something. I don't know. I like to cook. I just, it was a weird segue is all. I don't all. think anybody's really going to stop by. I'm just saying. I don't know. Do you know? said they're all our friends. All, all I said they're all our best friends. friends. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'll cook for all of my friends. Okay. That's fine. Stew yeah. sounds good. Yeah. It's a little warm for stew right now, but. Okay. What do you, what do you want? Spaghetti? Can no. I want, can we do like kebabs? Yeah. We, well, it's not quite that warm yet. I know, but I think, I think people like kebabs. I like kebabs. Okay. If you anyway. stop by in the summer, you get kebabs. There you go. Okay, that's it. Okay, so thanks for listening. Rock on! <laughs>